Hey, everybody. Welcome to season two of The Brown Print with me, Carrie Champion. And that's right. I said season two because this time around, there's a twist on The Brown Print. Each week, I'll bring you conversations with some really accomplished people, folks you've seen, maybe some folks you've never heard of before, but they always have one thing in common, how they were able to come back. I want you to be inspired. I want you to see people who are just like me and you, and they figured it out. I hope they act as a guide. I hope you feel as if you're being mentored. I hope, in fact, that you feel like you're getting direction. Welcome to season two of The Brown Print, The Comeback. A lot of my homies, right, I grew up with these niggas my whole fucking life. They are what? They have homophobic tendencies, I yeah, would say. Right, right, right. Niggas feel like, you know, you can come eat a hot dog or a banana in public. You're two steps away from that beat scene and moonlight. I think the phobia got to drop because nobody's scared of y'all. I think it's how you base fear, it? though. Just, I don't think, like, people are like, ah, gay people, I got to get out of here. Right. But I do think there is a fear that the acceptance of gayness will change things that you don't want to yeah. be changed. I feel like they don't want their kids learning gay history in school. Yeah. I'm like, I don't, I don't agree why with do you that? I do theory? not agree with yeah, that. They don't, How is that different than a white person saying, you don't have to teach my kid about black people? Sam J is proof that it's never too late to decide to do something else, to actually just pursue your dreams. She's already a successful comedian, writer, actress, and producer. And she did all that pretty late in her career, I guess some would say. But once she decided to take a chance on herself, she completely changed the direction of her life. That pivot and the following years of hustle and grind landed her a writing gig at SNL. And the rest, as they say, is history. This year alone, she'll be working on the second season of her HBO late night show, Pause, starring Peacock's new show, Bust Down, and the Netflix new film, You People, alongside Eddie Murphy, Jonah Hill, and Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Sam J is booked and busy, as they say. So sit back, be inspired, and listen to how betting on yourself put Sam J in this position. This is the brown print of Sam J. Hi, how are you doing? How are you? It's been a while. Do you remember coming on um, our show? Yep. All right, so I literally had this conversation with this woman named Tony who works with me today. And I was like, it's apropos timing. I said, I'm interviewing Sam J. She said, I love the show. Have you seen it? Do you get that response from a lot of people? Do you not when it comes to pause? Yeah, people either love it or they, it's very like strong reaction. Either they love it or they hate it. <laughs> Do people walk up to you to say, I hate your show? No, no, never, never. That's like more of like a Twitter thing. But no one in person has ever come up to me to tell me they don't like it. People are usually pretty excited about it and want to talk about it when I bump into them in person. The Genesis, how did it come about? What, how did you sit in a, a room with others and say, I'm going to have a Chiron that says uh, scary nigga? You know, you know what I mean? <laughs> because literally I'm watching the show and I'm like, look at these Chirons. This is genius. Like in real time, when the girl came out and said she was a lesbian, in, we're, in real time, we're just going to flip it, obviously editing. But yeah. what made you decide to do that? Um, we were just trying to find places for jokes, you know what I mean? <laughs> we were, we were trying to just see where we could lighten things. And, you know, we're always very much like, yeah, I'm taking on some heavy topics, but this is still a comedy show. And it kind of just exposed itself as another place for jokes. Cause we were like, well, how are we going to lower third these people? Like, are we just going to put their title and, you know, whatever. And we were like, kind of every show does that, like with something that we can do. And it was like, Oh, we can just call them what we're calling them while we're in the room. 
you know, when we're in the room trying to talk about who we're going to talk to, we're like, yo, we need to get a Republican nigga. And we was like, oh, why don't we just call them the thing that we're calling them? That might be fun. That not only is fun, it's genius and it's obvious. And why, why not? Right. Why not? Sam, you don't shy away from many topics. When you realized that you had that ability to take on everything, including your sexuality, including your race, including what goes on in the world, when did it all come to you as a superpower? Hmm. You know, I just, I feel like because I'm living in such an intersectional space, it just gives me this advantage of seeing things from a lot of angles that maybe the average person who isn't living with this amount of intersectionality even has to see that I kind of have to see to navigate the world. And so to me, that was like the unique thing I could bring into a space. What is your intersectionality where you live? Uh, I mean, being black, a woman, a lesbian, and then a masculine of center lesbian, I think is a lot of different energies colliding on each other. I think it gives you a unique perspective and it makes people, especially in our industry, more curious about who you are and why you think the way you do. Does that ever annoy you? Do you ever just want to walk in the room and be Sam J without the titles and labels? Uh, you know, I think for me personally, that's what I try to do. When I approach a show, I try to come from my perspective and not like, what's the gay perspective on this or what's the black perspective on this? But like, what is my perspective on this? What is my life or lived in experience in this thing? And so sometimes that doesn't always necessarily completely align with what the majority of thinking is for any of the groups I may belong to. But it is like the truth of what I think or the truth of what I want to explore. And so, I mean, I try to create space for me to be just that, just myself. So being yourself has been pretty successful, but there was a time when it wasn't. And I remember you sharing this on you know, I, as a fan, I follow you, you talk about it, I watch your show, you, you shared your experience when you quote unquote came out, right? You knew you were gay at what age? 25, maybe 24, 25. And you were already well into knowing that you wanted to be a stand up, right? No, I didn't start stand up until I was 29 years old. I saw that, but I thought you were doing it beforehand. You weren't? Did it like at 21, I did it like a couple, like a couple times, I want to say like twice. And then yeah. I got sick and then I, I moved to Atlanta for a little while and I wasn't doing it at all. I was just like doing a bunch of other shit and I didn't do it for a minute. And then at 29, I got back on stage. OK, so here we are. Twenty five. I'm gay. Twenty nine. I decide to do comedy or you're coming out. You decide to do comedy. That is a part of who you are. That is a part of your observations. It is a part of what you talk about. How was it received? You know, for the most part, I was lucky and it was pretty chill. I think, you know, I dealt with like just some ignorance of like get asked dumb questions from my friends or, you know, my cousins being like, oh, I knew you was gay because your boyfriend <laughs> had blonde hair or just stupid, <laughs> stupid shit like that. But it was no real like shunning that went on. I lost okay. one friend in the process that was a close friend of mine that couldn't really, uh, a female friend of mine that couldn't really handle it. But other than that, it wasn't a, a big uh, rupture. A lot of people kind of already knew and were kind of like, you're late. We kind of figured this about you. And I was like, ah, okay. I think me not having parents uh, had a lot to do with it not being crazy as well. I was older and 
both my parents had passed away at that point. So I didn't really have anyone to mm. answer to. Sorry. So in that way, it was kind of just like, I'm doing me. So at 29, you start doing stand-up. How long did it take for you to get your first big gig? Walk me through that step. At 29, I did it a couple of times when I'm 21. 29, I'm doing it. This is it. I'm all in. Tell me that one. The first gig that you got that made you feel like you were a comedian and you made it. Dang. That's a tough question. Because it feels like it was a little bit of a series of like gigs, you know, and moments. Like I remember when I first got paid like $500 to do stand up. And I was like, whoa, you know, I'm getting paid $500 to do stand up. Like, holy shit, I'm doing it, you know. And then it was like the first time I did like an hour of my own, like an hour on my own. And I was like, oh, hell yeah, I'm doing hours now. I'm doing it. And then it was the first time I did a theater and I was like, whoa, I'm doing theaters. Even though I was only doing like 15, 20 minutes, it still was like, I'm doing theaters with like, you know, John Mulaney. Yeah. And so now I feel like, yeah, I'm doing it. It's different. My Comedy Central half hour special was probably the first thing I did did that was like, all right, I'm in the game. Yeah. Well, to me, yeah. Having your own special on Comedy Central, you're in the game. <laughs> so that but but I get what you're saying. There were all these these little moments that led up to it. And you're like, OK, I'm working. I'm working. But I made it. So so now you have this incredible pressure, I think, on you to deliver. Right. I have a special if I had a special Monday moment, I'd be like, I got to be funny. I would be feeling a little anxiety. How'd you feel? How'd you sit to create? Because I would have felt a way. What a half hour. Right. I was just so amped right I had the jokes and I was so ready to like get these jokes out and and like really solidify them somewhere because it's like when you just you know running around the road telling the jokes I don't feel like it lives anywhere so like the half hour was my first time like d these jokes are finally gonna have like a house I think my hour special I, I put a lot more thought into it you know the half hour I really just concentrated on the jokes and I feel like the hour I was concentrated on the jokes, but I was also concentrated on how it looked, uh, like how it was shot, how it all was going to come across. I was yeah. more in, invested in the entire project. It was nerve wracking for sure. But I think, too, it's I'm lucky to have a lot of mentors in comedy and comedy is like a really uh, mentor, mentor -y type of space. Like if you're open to it, the older comics will kind of like give you advice and tell you stuff or whatever. So I remember just asking um, Burr, I, I actually asked him to listen to the entire hour. <laughs> he was like, I'm not going to do that. I was like, okay. <laughs> Before I, uh, do, you have, do you have an hour you can spare? <laughs> yeah, to just listen to my shit. Uh, but he was like, you, I don't need to do that. He's like, I know you're funny. The jokes are there. You just have to know that all this is is a documentation of where your act is right now in this moment. That's it. And it's going to grow from here. The act's going to change from here, but this moment, you're just documenting where you're at. And I was like, okay, cool. That's a cool way to like look at it. And that kind of gave me some ease going into it of like, this isn't my only moment. We just locking into this space and this time. And it helped me be present and just in there doing what I was doing and not everywhere else in my head. And I think that helped make it good. No, nice. So when I was thinking big gig and you were talking about how precious your, your half hour and your hour were to you in terms of really paying attention to it, I was thinking SNL because you talk about it in your show, Pause, 
follow me, guys. She has a lot of jobs. I'll, I'll explain it all later. <laughs> but you talk about it and pause and you kind of get into an intense conversation about if if you had tweeted something awful about SNL and then you turned around and had to get the gig. So I think there's a lot of pressure that comes with that particular position, right? Yeah, for sure. It's just a high pressure, a very intense environment. Because it was such a moment that I wasn't expecting. So there was no Hmm. real preparation to go into it. Like, it just all kind of happened. I did JFL and they saw me there. And then they were like, will you come audition? And I was like, sure. And then I auditioned. And then they were like, will you come audition New York? And I was like, yeah. And they're like, will you move in two weeks and write for the show? And I was like, sure. And then I was just there. It was my first writing job. So I never had, I never been staffed on a show before or, or been in a writer's room before or or really none of it until, until that moment. So it was just a lot of like failing and learning and, and growing in that way. But it wasn't ever this is like a big moment because I didn't plan for it. So there was moments within it. Like when I finally figured out how to write sketching, I was like, I put my first like, oh, this is a good actual sketch to the table finally getting things on, like stuff like that. But overall for me, SNL was just like a giant educational experience. So I'm going to repeat back what I thought I heard. I had never been in a writer's room. I had never written before. And my first writing gig was for Saturday Night Live. How incredibly awesome is that story? How amazingly terrifying that story could be. So for you to say you spent most of your time failing and learning, I hear about those rooms and they're vicious. I mean, anybody who's ever, they just talk about how tough it is and, and you, have to, you have to be ready to go at a moment's notice. Biggest takeaway, if not several takeaways, like I couldn't even, I'm, my stomach hurts. I got to use the bathroom thinking about it. Like that's, that's crazy to me. You weren't scared? Uh, yeah, of course. I, I think you go, in the, you know, at first it's like, I'm completely out of my league. Like a lot of these people I wrote for the Lampoon at Harvard and, know the mechanics of comedy writing. Like I know the instincts of being funny, but they know the mechanics and they know the the rules, the rule of three. And like, and I know these things, but I don't know them to be rules. I just think like that. So I don't know these to be technical, like jargon or rules. It's just the way I, I think. But I also have never had to put all those thoughts in anything cohesive, like a, a sketch. And then I've never had to like write for other people. I've been writing for myself. So that was another like step that I had to like figure out, but I I guess you just do it. You're there. You know what I mean? It's kind of just like, so are they like you dumb? That's not smart. Or is the criticism like, okay, next, how is it? Or is it my my biggest insecurity? I'm like, Hey, so here's my joke. And like, not funny next. No, it's not like that. It's not like that. They, (laughs) they can be, but that kind of stuff only happens when you're comfortable with each other. Like you're comfortable making fun of each other and be like, Oh, that bombed, you know, but in a way more loving way, it's not like, just cutthroat like that, especially once you're at the table building the sketches, because it's like we're all pitching on other people's stuff. At this point, we're just trying to make the show the best show it's going to be on Saturday. When you when you're first like you're writing your stuff to get in, it's really not me. You just know it. it people just don't laugh. And if they don't laugh, then you just know it wasn't funny, you know? And yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you pay attention to what they did laugh at. And, and that's one thing that really helped me is like, you know, in my first couple of weeks, I was like, you know, really struggling, of course. And and I was feeling like I suck. And it was also hard because I was like sucking in front of my peers. You know, Che is a, a friend of mine and it knew me from stand up. And I'm pretty good at that. So to just be failing <laughs> on a weekly basis 
And Chris Red is my closest friend and he's known me for a long time and know me to be funny and I'm just, you know, turning out trash sketch after trash sketch. But one of the things that Jay told me was just, you know, if I'm not getting things on to pay attention to the table and it'll teach me a lot to pay attention mm. to the things that are going, to pay attention to the flow of the table. And so I just started doing that and I started like taking my, those sketches that I liked that worked at the table and people laughed at and that I actually enjoyed and like reading them over and over again to see the moves or like how they doing it. Yeah. And then watching the table and seeing what people like, like to do you. Cause that's part of it is just casting your sketch. Right. You have to learn what makes Kate shine. What kind of roles does she do that? She like, she loves and she kills that. What gets her excited? What, what is Beck really good at? Cause that'll also help your sketch. So just, you know, like kicking back and, and, and taking and giving my trusting myself to, to learn mm. and giving myself some time to learn. And also realizing like, at some point I had to just like get out of my own way. Like, yo, they knew I never wrote no sketches when they brought me to this motherfucker. So like, <laughs> it is kind of what it is. Like there's going to be a, a phase of, I don't know what I'm doing. It's not like I lied to get the job. I told them I don't do that. <laughs> and they said, we think you could. And I was like, all right, I'll try. So it's like, I, I, I don't really owe it more than just giving it my all every week. That's all I could do. Wow. Why? That, those are the best jobs. Look, I don't know how to do this, but we think you can. Cool. Well, then I'm coming. Yeah. But y'all know I lied. <laughs> Um, what a great story. And it's very inspiring in a, in a lot of ways as, as someone who considers what I, I, you know, the art of what you do. And I told you I was a fan. In fact, even though I, I DM'd you about this, I'm giving you guys some BTS some behind the scenes I DM'd and I was like, girl, I just watch pause. And it's just amazing. Just like get, you're, you're doing it. You're very humble, very kind. I sent Prentice a message. Same thing. He's like, she's the genius. Da, 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 da. He's always very deferential about how, smart you are. Um, and the very first episode, you you bring everybody in the way it's shot, the way that you're considering the joke. Like you said, another way to tell good jokes is what you do with your graphics, which is hilarious. Um, I can go on and on, which I will. There's this one scene where you had, was it, um, it wasn't the the Black Olympics. It wasn't the Black Cookout, but what was it where you they had the choir and everybody had on purple and gold? They oh, had on their, it was um, the Mega Constitution. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> and and you're reading, you know, the commandments and and or whatever. And I'm laughing so like so hard. Where I'm like, this is so smart. I don't even. I was like, I can't watch this and play on my phone. That's the type of TV you, oh, you you're awesome. giving. That's the kind of content that you're giving because we watch everything and do everything distracted. You can't be distracted while watching you. But what really grabbed me was when you talked about being, I don't know, blacklisted, I guess, for lack of a better term, in the L- and the LGBTQ community. Can you talk to me about that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, and I'm, I'm what, two years outside of that special, two years outside of that joke. But I did a trans joke on my special that kind of, it pissed some people off. It, they felt like it was insensitive. And I think they felt betrayed that material like that would come from me, a person who they considered to be a part of their community. I felt like I was doing my best to do a progressive trans joke, but still be a silly Billy comic. Um, I look at the joke now. I don't regret the joke and I never want that feeling to come along. But I think with any artist, you grow and you can look back on your work objectively. And so as I look back on it, I'm like, well, I could have added a step. I do think I went from A to B in a way that I expected 
them to follow and know my intention. And I should have put a little more intent in it. And that probably would have helped that situation. It helped clarify the joke and not had it feel so cutting for some people. I I wonder in today's news, right? With you think of Dave Chappelle and everyone was talking about him and in his show and he was, you know, being canceled, if you will. Do you think that is a part of what you do for a living? Sometimes you hope the audience, sometimes the audience does have to know you yeah. and know where you're going. You can take that for, it's not even taking it for granted. It should be, if you're a fan, it should be knowing what I'm doing, right? Yeah, no, for sure. I do think there's some, and that's why I don't regret it because I don't look at the moment and go, oh, you did it wrong. I do look at the moment and go, oh, you could do this better. But I look at a lot of the special until that way because I've grown and I've grown in my skill set. And when I think it would make the intention clear, I also just think, Excuse me. It would have made the joke better. Yeah. Um. And so that's kind of how I, I look at it. But yes, like some of this is living in my head a little bit. And that's part of the art form is like you're just kind of, you know, walking around in my head with me. And so, yeah, it, it, it will feel like that sometimes for sure. When I when I when I used to give wrong stats right on ESPN or if I said someone's name wrong, I'd have to come back and apologize. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. Did you feel like you had to do a formal, like, work the community apology? No, because I still don't feel like I did anything wrong. I feel like right. and there was no wrong intent in it or any malicious intent mm-hmm. in it. And it wasn't any, like, anti-speech. Uh, in my opinion, that definitely wasn't what I was doing. So, no, I didn't feel a need to do some grand, like, apology. If someone directly DM'd me and said, like, this bothered me, I had plenty of DMs that I long conversations with people like about what my intentions were and how I felt and apologizing to them personally Okay, because I, my intention is not to hurt anybody. But sure. uh, I have a, you know, I don't fully believe in that mob mentality of the internet and their need for blood and dragging people in the streets. And so I, I just don't, I just choose not to feed that. Like I'm a genuine person and there was several people who talked to me one person who wanted a phone call that I, I kind of met in passing at a show in Dallas. And like, I had a whole long conversation with her over the phone about my perspective. And I even went through that with some of the, the, the me too stuff that's in the special, you know, there's going to be something yeah. that touches everybody. I don't believe you can make something that everyone's going to love, especially if you're going to be challenging to culture. If there's going to be things that affect people or rub people the wrong way, but Again, I'm like a real person, so I don't have any problem having a conversation with you about it. I love for you the way you said, especially if you're going to be challenging to culture, because you get paid to do that. You're known for that. Some would say you're an expert at it because you make people laugh for for giving your opinion and having a perspective and being funny while doing so. Is there in today's society too much of a mob mentality when it comes to um, being and I don't know if it's overly sensitive, but too protective over uh, over what can and cannot be said in an artistic way. Uh, I mean, I yeah, I get it. Right. People people have been uh, marginalized, mistreated and are, are, are just feeling like they can, you know, connect with other people via the Internet and all this stuff and kind of have one voice and one power. And like, I do understand that. But I do think some of that groupthink is dangerous and it doesn't allow for progress and you it also just people aren't going to always agree with you and healthy dialogue about disagreements is important 
I, I find it very dangerous when people say things like, oh, well, such and so my family was a Republican, so I just cut them off and I don't talk to them anymore. And it's like, I, well, I don't know if that's like the proper way to deal with that. Dialogue is important and sharing perspective is important. I, I just believe like most things are in a gray area and trying to find some middle ground is like where all the the fruit is, you know? You have a lot going on in terms of projects, but I want to talk about your show on Peacock. Um, I also want to talk about what you're working on with Ken, directed by Kenya Barris that has Eddie Murphy in it called You People. Let's go with this. How many jobs do you have? How much? Like 15? <laughs> I don't know. I thought I had a lot of... You You have to. You know you got... It doesn't feel like work. You know, it's just like stuff happens. And then like, <laughs> oh, you, you have an opportunity to do this thing. And I'm like, all right. And then I just like, oh, do it. And then, <laughs> then like, I get an opportunity to do something else. And I'm like, cool. And then sometimes <laughs> those opportunities just happen to be at the same time. And it's like, okay. You're, uh, yeah, because I, I just named the four streaming services you're on all at once. But that's okay. Uh, so tell me about tell me about your show on Peacock. Uh, it's called Bust Down. I wrote it with my friends. We wrote it and created it. Uh, Jack Knight, Langston Kerman, and Chris Red. They are like my best friends. Uh, we've known each other five years now, kind of started comedy around the same time. It's kind of labor of love. It's something we've been working on since we kind of known each other. Uh, it's lived in a lot of places and it finally found a home on Peacock. And we got some really cool writers together, Gary Richardson, and Blotnick, Zach Fox. Uh, made a really dope writer's room and wrote the silliest thing we could think of. You know, it's a joke show and it's a joke fest and it's very uh, unimportant. It doesn't try to carry all of blackness on its shoulders and it doesn't try to be anything it just is and i really enjoy it for that what about you people that sounds like that sounds amazing oh movie it's my first movie so i don't probably mm-hmm. i know i'm not gonna watch it but uh wait 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 what do you mean you're not gonna watch oh, your first hey, movie i'm not gonna watch myself look stupid that's crazy uh, <laughs> <laughs> i try to keep all this intact <laughs> <laughs> but I had a good time. It yeah. was a great time. Yeah. Uh, I worked across Jonah Hill. I play his best friend and we have a podcast together. He's mm-hmm. a fucking master at the shit and he made it very easy going and yeah. he was just very sweet. It was it was really a joy to work with Jonah. Um we had a lot of long talks while we were waiting for things to be set up and like he was just so cool. Uh and uh Kay was great. The experience was just dope. Uh, doing scenes with Eddie was like, yeah, don't 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 do that. Don't big time. Don't big don't don't big time my brown print podcast. You got to give us a first and last name. We don't know him like that. Uh, doing scenes with Eddie Murphy was like, what the <laughs> hell? Uh, you know, it was really like, holy shit, this is happening. You know what I mean? I've made it. It was. I've made that it. That felt great. I don't know. I felt like, what are you even doing here? Like, no, that's that, a, I made it moment. Yeah, <laughs> that for sure. Felt crazy. Um. But it was a cool too because you know Eddie was on um, SNL and I was I wrote on that episode and I wrote the uh, Black Jeopardy sketch with Brian Tucker and so we had some familiarity. So like that first day on set, he asked me if I was still at SNL. I told him no, I have my own show now. And he was like, that's cool. And, and I was like, all right, well, this this is cool. Like he knows I exist. He didn't forget I existed in the. <laughs> In the yes. interim, so that's that's nice. amazing. Um, but I mean, Nia Long's in the movie. Uh, Kim Cole, I think, is in the movie. Lauren London, 
Lauren London is says, yeah, David Duchovny, David Duchovny. I'm who looking. was very fun and cool too. David Duchovny. Yeah. Uh, Rhea Perlman. You gotta, it's a, it's a great. Yeah. It's a lot. Lala. It's a lot of people. Lala Anthony, a lot of like varying experiences and a lot of vets. And I was like really Mike Epps. And I was like really just new to all of it. So it was mm-hmm. very cool to be ushered in under all these great people and be able to watch them do their thing and again just have a another really awesome learning experience at the same time i think it's so amazing eddie knew you and asked you about black jeopardy which is obviously infamous and famous for so many reasons did you that's when you like you know a little something you know yeah just a little something you didn't feel any swag you know you you, you didn't you're, you didn't puff out your chest like no, a little bit not at all. He still had he worked. the fact that he remembered me from working with him on snl and being like how are you was like the little girl in me was jumping up and down like this is so crazy. <laughs> I love that for you. I let you deserve all of that. Sam, your career has a theme. You always bet on yourself. I think that's has a lot to do with being marginalized in general. We always have to look out for ourselves. No one else will. But there are people who want to do what you want to do and feel like it's impossible. Or they look to you and may admire certain characteristics that you have. Um, what's the advice that you're giving to those? who may feel like they are being ignored, but want to continue to push on. I mean, I think you do just, uh, you got to trust the things that got you there. You know what I mean? Like betting on myself is what got me into a position to get SNL. So why wouldn't I bet on myself to move to whatever was next for me? And uh, you got to be willing to kind of like live and die on your choices. You know what I mean? Like shoot or shoot. And uh, you go, sometimes it's going to break, but if you're going to keep shooting, that don't really matter. You know what I'm saying? You can't look at anything like it's the last opportunity. I'm very big on that lately. Like, I feel like that's a rhetoric, especially that is preached to black people. Like, you only got one shot. There's only one shot. There's only one chance. There's only one moment. And if you don't, and it's like, that's bullshit. There's tons of moments if you make them. And if you keep going and you keep striving and you keep trying, there's going to be a lot of opportunities. It's really just more about like that age old saying, and you just got to keep getting up and you just got to keep shooting. That's it. You got to keep getting up and got to keep shooting. That was great. Um, Before I let you go, quick little rapid fire. It might only be two questions. Who is the Michael Jordan of comedians, in your opinion? Whoa. The Michael Jordan of comics? The GOAT. Is that be Richard? Because he changed the way everybody did. Like him, Dick Gregory. But it's like, just, I would say Richard over Dick, just because if you think of Michael Jordan, it's like also like the main, like Dick Gregory's like the Bill Russell. Yeah. And Pryor is like the, the Michael Jordan. Wow. 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 All right. Who would be then? Who would then be? Because I got to stay with basketball. Who would be your Kobe? Probably my Kobe's Chris Rock just for the time, the period that I fell in love with him. And his, uh-huh. and his stand up, like the age I was in, then my LeBron would be Dave. Really? Interesting. Because, you know, that feels more goatish to me. Really? Well, yeah, doesn't it? Remember, because everyone's always battling, who is it? Is it Mike? Obviously, we know it's Jordan over LeBron, but right. you always hear that, that, that age-old debate. Is it LeBron? Is it Jordan? Right. It's clearly Jordan, but there's a generation that will tell you it's LeBron. Yeah, I feel like Dave is that of this generation. He's like the transcendent comic, for sure. Okay. Okay. Great. Who would you want to work with of the three that you named that are still alive? Well, y'all sit in the writer's room. Y'all putting, yeah, it's a movie. It's y'all doing this work. Like y'all going to bond like crazy, whoever it may be. Um, I would like to make something with Chris or Dave, honestly. To, yeah. I would like to really dig in and be like, we're going to make something. 
Yes. I would, by the way, both of those would be amazing. I'm buying whatever it is 10 times over. We just spoke it into existence and I'll be there. Okay. In the front row telling you we already did it. I like so many comics. I'd like to make something with John Mulaney and like. So we can't, okay. We're not going to just leave it with those two. We got, who else we want to work with? Who else? Mulaney, Burr. I mean, Chris and Dave probably ultimate on my mind right now, but then I think about how funny Mulaney is and where he is right now and just how fucking funny he's being. And I'm like, oh, it'd be fun to make something with John because he's being like, the funniest the energy would just be dope you know what i mean and ali wong is fucking oh i love amazing her to me. i've never done it yeah. for her but if anything i would want to do something with ali wong really bad because we've never even done a thing yeah. together and i have so much respect for her as a comic i just think she's she's so brilliant she's up there she's so effortless too but anyway i digress it's time for me to let you go Pause with Sam J is currently airing on HBO Fridays, 11 Eastern. Support my girl. It's a great show. Like I said, you can't be on the phone while you watch it. It's absolutely amazing. You can also stream it on HBO Max. And of course, Sam, thank you, my dear, for joining us. Thank you. As I do with every edition of The Brown Print, I like to give you guys some takeaways, some gems, if you will. So you're welcome ahead of time. Uh, But Sam J said a lot of uh, very inspiring things, but also things that just really rang true. Um, First and foremost, there's more than one opportunity. Keep taking shots. I think that's most important coming from Sam J. Uh, She started her career, her comedian career, if you will, late in life. She didn't start until she was 29 years old. She said she gave it a shot when she was 21 a few times, but nothing really significant. Imagine at 29 years old saying, I actually want to do something that's scary. I want to walk away from everything that I know uh, and everything that feels familiar to me and just keep taking shots until I get the one that really gives me that opportunity. And that's exactly what she did. Uh, Number two, be a student. Now, she didn't say it in that way. She said, learn from your failures. Failures are always a good thing. But what stood out to me about that message was when she talked about working as a writer at Saturday Night Live. Working as a writer, a job in which she had never had before, they knew that. And she said she would watch week after week as she bombed certain sketches and they just didn't go over well. But her friends told her you should learn the room, see what works, pay attention to people around you. To me, oftentimes we get so focused on our own success that would have made most people feel as if they were a failure. But instead, she paid attention to her colleagues, to the other people in the room, and she listened to the advice. If that's not a lesson about being a student, I don't know what else is. And last but not least, be willing to live and die by your words. Wow. I don't know. That's tough. Meaning for someone in her business, especially in her business, where she uses her words to connect. She uses her words to tell stories. She uses words to make folks laugh. That's what she has to understand. Her word is her bond. I don't necessarily know if I have that just yet. I would like to think that I do. I don't know if I have that particular ethos when it comes to what I do for a living, but you can tell that's why she's so successful. She doesn't have any regrets and she lives and dies by the words she speaks. Well, a lesson for all of us, a lesson for me. Thank you for listening to this edition of The Brown Print with Sam J. So that's it for this week's episode of The Brown Print. Let's keep this conversation going online. That's where you can keep it a buck, as the kids say. Follow us on Instagram at The Brown Print Podcast or on Twitter 
at Brown Print Pod. Follow me, Carrie Champion, on IG and Twitter. Just at my name, Carrie Champion. And if you enjoyed this episode, which I'm sure you will, share it with your friends and family and help spread the word. We'd greatly appreciate it also if you showed us some love by leaving a five-star rating and a positive review. Only positive reviews, please. The Brown Print is a Gallery Media Group original production.